Let us pray. Help us to make a joyful noise to you, O God, whether it be in the words that we say, or the actions that we take, or the thoughts that we think, our very lives, reflecting your great love for us. Now silence in us any voice but your own, and speak your word for Christ's sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, beginning at the 28th verse of the ninth chapter. Let us hear God's word. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have been thinking about our friends in the United Methodist Church a great deal this week, as well as our friends in the Roman Catholic Church and more remotely in the Southern Baptist Convention. A confluence of news about leadership and power and human sexuality. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was a Methodist until the day he got married, and then my grandmother won the coin flip on that one. (laughs) My in-laws were United Methodist missionaries. One of my degrees is shared with two historically Methodist institutions, and some of my best friends are Methodist. (laughs) I've been thinking about them this week as their general conference voted to extend and even to intensify prohibitions on LGBTQ ministerial service and marriage equality. I wasn't going to say much. To put it crassly, frankly, it's none of my business. We Presbyterians took a very long time to get where we got, and where we are now is far from perfect. And even then, getting here took a toll, a significant toll. 
churches departing on one end of the spectrum and countless Presbyterians leaving across the years because their conscience would not allow them to stay. Or staying, deeply closeted, hiding that very core part of who they were in order to serve, in order to persist. Commentary is all over the place on this, even within the portion of the church that disagrees with the current Methodist decision. Should people stay? Should people go? What will the future look like? I have no wisdom to offer except to reach out, as I have, reach out personally or on your behalf to affected partners. I always chose to stay, as did the churches I was privileged to serve, and never once considered leaving or withholding dollars a theological commitment to unity, and a political commitment to change within. And also because my own ordination was never, ever threatened. Others chose to leave. Sadly so. Sad because their own sense of who they were was rejected by the church they so loved. And sad because the church's loss of gifted leadership And so we pray for the United Methodist Church without hoping to meddle or condescend. But I've been thinking about this not only because of the news, but for other reasons. One is that it served as a kind of reminder trigger for our own Presbyterian battles, and battles they were. We will remember Carol Qualich later this week, who was so instrumental in getting this congregation to where it is now. And if you are around here in the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s, you will remember all that. Nearly a quarter of a century of my own ministry was invested in this effort. I was talking to a friend on Friday. He had been a Presbyterian minister and a very good one. And then he was outed. And so he decided to set aside his ordination, a true act of integrity and courage. And later, when we changed our minds, he began that whole ordination process again. And is now serving, serving faithfully and well in a congregation. I thought about that story, his journey and those of so many others. And every so often I'm reminded it's good to rearticulate things, what I believe, what this congregation has believed, so here goes. Once you believe that people are, in the timeless words of Oscar winner Lady Gaga, born this way, And once you decide that same-gender intimacy is no more or no less sinful than opposite-gender intimacy, and once you believe in baptism, and once you believe that the Holy Spirit calls who the Holy Spirit will call, then the rest seems clear, or so it does to me. 
And that's not in spite of the Bible, but because of it. It's not a rejection of our tradition, but an affirmation of it. It's not an accommodation to culture, but a transformation of it. Now, sometimes those conclusions come easily. And sometimes they are hard wrought over time. And while I believe and have worked for a place for disagreement and dialogue and diversity of opinion in the church, as one of the rejected Methodist plans offered, as our Presbyterian approach can be understood, that can never come at the expense of denying anyone's full and true humanity. So that's one reason I've been thinking about all of this. The journey a church takes, the journey individuals take, and how it impacts people we care about and love. The second has to do with this morning, the last Sunday before Lent begins, what we call Transfiguration Sunday, when we read again two surreal stories One from Exodus, one from the Gospels. Exodus first, Brad just shared it. God gives the law, what we know is the Ten Commandments, and inscribes them on stone tablets. We know what that looks like. Moses goes up to the mountain to receive them, and while he does, the people who don't trust God, who don't believe God, are down at ground level, worshiping a golden calf. So Moses comes down from the mountain, and he is angry. He is angry beyond anger, and he takes the tablets and he breaks them. And he then must convince God not to destroy the people. God relents, and so Moses goes back up the mountain to get another set of tablets. And when he comes back down, the people notice Moses' face shining. It has changed in appearance because he has been in God's presence. And it's so noticeable that he puts a veil over his face, a mask of sorts, only to remove the veil when he is in God's presence. Now one might think that the opposite might be the case, that Moses would cover his face when he meets God face to face. Fast forward several centuries, Jesus, having ministered, taught, fed, healed, goes up another mountain to pray. And he takes three disciples with him. And as he's praying, his face changes. His appearance changes, dazzling, shining, along with his clothing. Moses and Elijah appear. And the disciples, frankly, are kind of freaked out by the whole thing. They want to memorialize it. They want to build a monument to it. They want to stay up on the mountaintop forever. And a voice booms out, imploring all of them to listen to Jesus. And then, like that, it's silent again. No voice, no Elijah, no Moses, no dazzling shininess. Back down the mountain back to healing and preaching and feeding. Just as some of my best friends are Methodists, some of my best friends live in Virginia. 
So I've been vigilant in following news about that state in recent days, including news of that state's governor. Now, no partisan politics this morning. The debate about resignation is best left up to the governor's own conscience and the consciences of the people who elected him. And yes, we all deserve second chances and third chances and fourth chances and many chances, but I'm not sure how we equate a second chance with job security and effectiveness. At least without a deep sense of penance and repentance, whether it's a politician or an athlete or a celebrity or any of us. Forgiveness and redemption are God's business. They become our currency. And so it would be good to take those topics and put them in a mix, forgiveness and redemption, along with systemic racism and its long reach and the evil and long legacy and practice of blackface, affirming that even if we are in a different place culturally right now, that it was never okay. What strikes me on this Transfiguration Sunday is that impulse, and not just a Virginia governor's impulse, not only to change your appearance, but to do so in such a hateful way, or a clan outfit, to hide your true self in order to practice hateful, violent forms of racism, hiding behind a mask, hiding behind a hood, What I'm trying to say is that the evil of discrimination against an LGBTQ person either denies who they truly are or forces them in church or society to live as one they are not. And blackface hides while at the same time denigrating those who it mocks. And meanwhile, Moses can show his face to God, his true face to God. And the Israelites know something good is going on, even at the same time as they know something kind of scary is going on. And when the disciples try to capture that mountaintop moment, with everybody looking differently than they do in real life, it quickly passes. And Jesus' face looks like it always has, fully human, as he comes back down the mountain to heal and to teach and to preach and to feed. Tuesday is Mardi Gras, a night for wearing masks. And then we come down the mountain. As Lent begins the next day, a season for shedding masks. We seek, like Moses, encounters with the holy and when we have them, our faces will shine, our lives will shine. But they will be our true faces. The disciples experience something unfathomable, shining faces. But when all is said and done, normalcy returns, no distorted appearance, but real life, everyday life, back on the ground, flesh and blood ministry. 
Moses removes his veil to see the face of God and not the other way around. And I think that's what faith looks like. No mask. No disguise. No pretense. Our true and honest selves, whether we're looking in a mirror, in the face of someone we love, in the face of a stranger, or the very face of God, transfiguration leading to transformation, leading to acceptance, leading to love. Amen.